Hi everyone, it's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington DC on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there. Hi, Ariana. Hi, Vanessa. And hello to all of our feminist listeners. That's right. Just by listening, you are now a feminist. Congratulations. We knight you officially feminist. What's the female equivalent of a knight? I think women can be knights. (laughs) Obviously. So welcome to the second episode of the Women of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Ariana, it is your turn to offer a blessing for a character. Whom would you like to bless this week? The process of thinking of who to bless was just as stressful as you said it was going to be last time. I hemmed and I hawed, and I decided to bless Trelawney. Yay! Why are you blessing Trelawney? So, in this reading of Harry Potter that we've been doing with the podcast, I've fallen in love with Lavender and Parvati and their friendship. And one of the things that really brings them together is Trelawney. And I started thinking about how the way that Lavender and Parvati are with Trelawney is so similar to the way that the trio is with Hagrid. Ooh, fascinating. Trelawney is a Hagrid figure. Yeah, so I guess I wanted to bring that to this episode and think about the ways in which they both are really personally good at the subject that they're teaching. I think we both can agree that Trelawney is a good seer and Hagrid is great with animals and they're both perhaps failures as teachers, Um, but I think they both are really good mentors. Um, And in looking back at Prisoner of Azkaban, we see that Lavender and Parvati go on their lunch breaks to go talk to Trelawney, and they come out, it says, as if they knew secrets just for themselves. And it reminded me so much of the trio going to Hagrid and Hagrid telling them secrets, um, always giving away things to them. It made me really love Trelawney and the relationship that she's building with these two young students. Yeah, and we just saw in book five, I think it's Lavender, but it's definitely either Lavender or Parvati who comes to Trelawney's defense against Umbridge. Yeah, that's right. And so, like, she's built such a bond with these two students that they are, like, willing to stand up to authority to defend her. I love this Trelawney and Hagrid relationship comparison. I think that that is fascinating. And I really like the distinction that you're making between being good at your subject and being good at teaching your subject. I hate the expression, those who can't do teach, but they're sort of like the just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should teach it, right? Like teaching is its own skill. Yeah, I wonder if Dumbledore kind of has like a like a pet affinity for people who really love their subject and that makes you somehow intrinsically a good teacher. Yeah, it's so interesting as to whether or not loving your subject makes you get a bad teacher. But anyway, that's a separate thing. I also really love the idea of Trelawney as a mentor. This also complicates for me Hermione storming out of Trelawney's class of divination. It's something that on the first and second time I read the series, I was like, you go, Hermione. This class is nonsense. And then, yeah, upon this reading of it, as you said, like, it has become clear with the help of our listeners to me that all of Trelawney's predictions, big and small, come true. 
And I think that it's like a real failing of Hermione that she storms out of this class. It could be because she's a bad teacher, but Hermione is sitting and like helping Hagrid write his lesson plans, and she's not doing that with Trelawney. I'm wondering if you noticed like concrete pieces of evidence of her mentorship. I mean, the girls walking away feeling like they have a secret. Yeah, I think the fact that they spend lunch with her, I think in that same scene that you were mentioning with Umbridge, where the fact that Trelawney's so afraid of going to sit back at her seat because Umbridge is sitting right there, that she takes a sharp turn and goes to the table where Lavender and Parvati are. I think little moments like that make me think that like she feels safe with them and understood by them. What's interesting to me about the distinction between Hagrid and Trelawney is that I feel, just from what I know, because we don't get to see it as much on the page, that Lavender and Parvati love Trelawney because of divination, that like their bond is about the subject, um, whereas the bond with Hagrid and the trio lives outside of the subject. Um, and I think we can have a long conversation about whether or not the bond with Hagrid is healthy or not. But I think when I'm thinking about what makes a good mentor, I really love that what Parvati and Lavender and Trelawney have is about specifically divination, that she's helping foster this love in them. I love that. It's like a fan community. It's nerdy, right, to come together over love of a subject. And she's helping them learn it. Yeah. She's like, you love Jane Eyre? Come to my office during lunch and we'll read more Jane Eyre. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been seeking out teachers to teach me independent studies about reading since I was Lavender Parvati's age. I'm trying to think of the idea of Trelawney as mentor, and I'm trying to think about what makes a good mentor. I mean, this is something that Casper and I have talked a little bit about and that I think we disagree about. But I do think that part of being a good mentor is showing a little bit of your mistakes and your failures and being vulnerable enough, right? It's about being vulnerable the right amount in front of the people who you're mentoring. So there's like a little bit of, look, I'm not perfect either. It's hard for all of us. You can sort of see the sweat. But you also want to create a sense of safety and boundaries and have the sort of like power dynamic be clear that Lavender and Parvati, like, I'm here for you, but you don't have to be here for me. And so I feel like in this moment with Umbridge, Trelawney is sort of showing us that she's not just their mentor. She sees them as friends, right? If you're going to someone for support, then... But I think it makes sense that, like, a teacher in a classroom, if you know that there's a student there who likes you, if you're saying something vulnerable, like, you look at them in the class instead of the other students that maybe are more scary. I don't think there's any evidence that she's exploiting their care in the way that Hagrid maybe exploits the trio's care. No, yeah, there isn't that evidence. I think a thing that's perhaps condemnable about Trelawney, obviously, is the way in which she uses her sight as power, that she is all-knowing, and therefore, like, that gives her authority. And she uses it to fearmonger. Yes. And Lavender and Parvati are the first ones to, like, really buy into it. Yeah. My concern is the reason that she pay so much attention to them is because they buy into this aura that she's created for herself and not because they actually have the sight in a way that other students don't. I mean, they have 
an interest in the way that other students don't. They have passion for it in the way that other students don't. Yes, but she's made it very clear that certain people have it and certain people don't. And Hermione, you don't have it. Lavender and Privati, you're naturals. Yeah. And Hermione is very vocal in challenging her, and Lavender and Privati are very vocal in defending her. No, that is a huge flaw in Trelawney. Right. She's somebody who goes around and, yeah, uses her gifts as a source of power and yet simultaneously doesn't fully realize her gifts, right? When she, like, goes into a trance and makes predictions, she, like, doesn't remember and won't really lay claim to them. I would say maybe because that prediction doesn't serve her in any way. That's why she's willing to make predictions that serve her. Oh, I saw that I would be joining you for this Christmas lunch. So I came to Christmas lunch, and that is a prediction, quote-unquote, that serves her so that she can come have a delicious lunch. Except what doesn't serve her is making the prediction that the first person who stands because there are 13 people at the lunch is going to die. That's not a prediction. It's a superstition that she buys into. Isn't a superstition that you buy into the same thing as a prediction? Interesting question. It's a reliable prediction. Every time you step on a crack, you are going to break your mother's back, right? Yeah, I guess I just think of that differently as like the sight showing her something as she usually talks about it in the books. Right. No, I completely agree with you. I don't think that that is why she doesn't lay claim to the other two predictions. I think she can't remember it. She can't explain it. I mean, the first one, we don't even know if she knows about. Does Dumbledore tell her that she made this prediction, this prophecy? I have no idea. It's why Dumbledore hires her to keep her close. But I'm not sure she even knows about it. And I'm not convinced that anyone ever tells her, like, specifically that the second one was a prediction that then came true. Right. So, I mean, it could just be men stealing a woman's good ideas. That's so sad, really. Yeah. Not only does she not know that she's capable of these big predictions that Harry tries to tell her and she's like, oh, no, no. I know what kind of predictions I make. I make predictions about the cup smashing. I don't make predictions about Lord Voldemort. Right. And after generations of men ignoring her, not telling her that her predictions are true and good, when a child, when Harry tries to tell her, she just doesn't even believe that she's capable of that. I think that that's just like decades of men taking away her power. And that would also explain why she feels the need to exert her authority Why don't we read specifically what happens in that moment with her prediction? Great. Harry says, but you just said it. You said the Dark Lord. And she cuts him off and says, I think you must have dozed off too, dear, said Professor Trelawney. I would certainly not presume to predict anything quite as far-fetched as that. So interesting that she thinks Harry's death is not far-fetched, but the Dark Lord coming back is far-fetched. We all make predictions all the time. Oh, Donald Trump will never be elected, right? Like... We all say things that we have, like, no right to say about the future. And Trelawney, who's a seer, is like, I would never predict something like that, even though Hagrid predicts it in book one. He's like, I don't think Voldemort's dead. I think Voldemort's going to come back. And Hagrid's not a seer. He's just somebody who, like, is part of conversations, right, and is, like, a somebody thinking about it in the world. And it's so interesting that Trelawney is like, I would never predict that. She just seems to me like somebody who's been told things about herself for so long and that like has this family legacy. 
She's a descendant of Cassandra, so she's probably always worried that she's not living up to that. It seems to me like this is a complicated question of of self-identity. Yeah, I also think a prediction like that takes things so out of her control that, like, we know she's someone who likes to be in her tower most of the time, and that points to me as someone who really likes to have everything in control. Neville used this cup and not that one. Right. Like, I can handle you breaking one of my cups, but not two. And I wonder if someone saying you just predicted Voldemort coming back, just even trying to imagine what the world is like with Voldemort back, like grappling with the reality of that statement. We know so many people in the wizarding world are just too afraid to imagine that world. And I wonder if Trelawney is just one of those people who can't wrap her mind around what it would be for her to live in a world where Voldemort is back. I think she might also be someone who knows that one of the ways to make a prophecy come true is to repeat it again and again until it becomes true, which this is something that Donald Trump is excellent at, of like just repeating something until it becomes true. And so Harry repeating the prophecy, it's like, don't repeat it. Like the more we talk about it, the more likely it will be true. And we know that there are things where that biologically happens, right? My mom has um, tinnitus or tinnitus. And one of the ways that tinnitus can become worse, mom, stop listening right now, is by thinking about it because, like, you're creating more neural pathways from, like, your ear to your brain. And so literally thinking about the thing makes it worse, which is one of the crazy-making things about tinnitus. And it's like spells, right? You conjure things the more you say them. So I know she's like, I would never do that. But it's like, also, don't say that. The more often you say it, the truer it is. Yeah. I wonder if to some extent she's also a good mentor to Harry and Ron. I guess more to the point, this makes me really regret that she doesn't do more to keep Hermione in the fold. That she doesn't say to Hermione, why don't you give this a year? If you still hate it in a year, that's fine. But like, why don't you give it a year? And instead just saying, like, you're clearly someone without the sight, which is something Hagrid does too, right? Hagrid writes off students. But I think that we're seeing here that just because someone's a good mentor to one person doesn't mean that they are a good mentor in general. I think the one thing that Hagrid does really well is he's trying to inspire the students to love the animals like he does. In this book, he shows them a hippogriff. He's like, isn't it beautiful? Because he thinks everyone has the potential to love animals the way that he does. And what Trelawney's trying to do is inspire the students to be in awe of her and her powers. And if they're in awe of her and her powers, then they'll learn divination. Instead, what she should be doing is trying to find the love of the subject in each person. Right. And what she does that's beautiful is, like, honor the love that's in these two young women and really foster that, right? I mean, I think that we've seen in our culture that, Being willing to mentor individual women is not the same thing as being like a feminist advocate and force for feminism out in the world and that we should celebrate people who mentor young women. But it's like not nearly enough to sort of like be a force for good. Yeah. Hermione is very lucky that she has another mentor in McGonagall. McGonagall and in Hagrid. He's a great mummy. Yeah. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. 
Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quips Electric Toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes, and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R.com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. So I have a game for you. Oh, so exciting. So the game that we're going to play is what do people think Nostradamus was predicting? So Nostradamus was a famous seer. He published a book in 1555 containing 242 quatrains that allegedly predict famous future events. And so I'm going to read you a couple of these quatrains, and you can tell me what the world at large has decided (laughs) he absolutely was definitely predicting. (laughs) So excited. Okay. Okay, this first one's sort of hard. Bring it on. From the enslaved populace, songs, chants, and demands, while princes and lords are held captive in prisons, these will in the future, by headless idiots, be received as divine prayers. Um, <laughs> I think Nelson Mandela becoming president. Fascinating. No, uh, obviously it's the French Revolution. Oh. The storming of Bastille, the French Revolution. (laughs) Obviously, like, princes and lords are held captive in prisons. 
and the spiritual princes and lords were let go on the Bastille Day. And then Headless. Uh, headless. Yeah, oh, the I Headless is that. key. I mean, in the songs, right, Enslaved Populace and Songs is obviously talking about the musical version of Les Mis. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what that is. Is that really what people interpret? No. Okay, good. This is all from an article in Business Insider, by the way. Um, okay. This one, I think you're going to get. Okay. No pressure. We'll just do two more. From the depths of West Europe, a young child will be born of poor people. He who by his tongue will seduce a great group. His fame will increase toward the realm of the East. Into a cage of iron will the great one be drawn when the child of Germany observes nothing. Winston Churchill? Close? Child of Germany has to be something about World War II. Just think the most obvious answer. Child of, of Western Europe, it has to be something about England and World War II, no? Well, then why England? It's Hitler. It's Isn't Hitler, it? specifically? Yeah. Mm. Hitler was born in Austria, which is in Western Europe, but his family was not was middle class, not impoverished. So Nostradamus didn't read that closely. He will seduce people with his tongue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I can see why people thought that. Do you want to do one more? I want to do one more. Okay. The great man will be struck down in the day by a thunderbolt, an evil deed foretold by the bearer of a petition. According to the prediction, another falls at nighttime. JFK assassination. Yes! Mostly I just knew that you would include that one. (laughs) It's the JFK assassination coupled with the Bobby Kennedy assassination, right? Mm. Because the second one falls at nighttime. But I love this so interesting about predictions, right? Is that you could actually tell because you knew me. Yeah. Which I think is one of the components of predictions. We went and had our fortunes told to us on my birthday a couple years ago. And he was a tarot reader, and he got it all wrong. He got it wrong for me, too, right? He said that I was going to buy real estate with a man in California. No, no, no. You were going to meet a man while buying real estate in California. <laughs> he should have He should have said this thing from Trelawney of, I would certainly not presume to predict anything quite as far-fetched as that. I even argued with him. I was like, I'm not shopping for real estate. You were like, maybe Oregon? I'm thinking about Oregon. He was like, no, no, not Oregon, California. (laughs) I was like, I'm not ready to buy anything. (sighs) Uh, Well, thank you for that wonderful blessing of Trelawney. Thank you for joining me in paying attention to Trelawney. This episode of the Women of Harry Potter and Sacred Text is brought to you by me, Vanessa Zoltan. And me, Ariana Nettleman. And beautifully edited by the great Ariana Martinez. And our music is by Nick Bull. We'll talk to you all in two weeks' time. Bye. Hey, I'm Dylan Marin, and this is Conversations with People Who Hate Me, the show where I call up some of the folks who have said hateful or negative things about me on the internet. You can listen to Dylan's conversation wherever you love listening to podcasts. Just search Conversations with People Who Hate Me. And remember, there's a human on the other side of the screen.